HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. I'm standing in the best reception spot that I remember on Ridgewood Ranch in northern Mendocino County, or I guess central Mendocino County. Ridgewood Ranch is the home of the Grange Farm School, which is transforming briskly into an incredible training facility for young farmers and is accepting applications for the next season. They are in the middle of Manzanita Berry season, and it is beautiful. They're going to get three inches of rain predicted, which they desperately need, so it's a beautiful Day, and I am on the phone with Suzanne Hunt, who is coming from the Finger Lakes District of New York State. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Let's let's go right forward. We have a very um, adapted audience of agrarians who know that we move briskly to the content of the matter. Will you tell us about what you're doing there uh, on the farmland and how you have come back to the farm? Uh, the context of the landscape there and, you know, what's going on. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up uh, on my family's farm, um, seventh generation of our family, uh, to be farming. My folks uh, started growing grapes in the 70s, and then the grape market crashed. Uh, So they then started uh, making wine. Uh, Today my parents are still engaged in the winery. My brother is the director of winemaking. He and his wife also uh, have certified 25 of our acres um, organic and do a whole beautiful array of different um, vegetables. They also do meat, chickens, um, forest mushrooms. We have hay. We have a woodlot. Um, my background um, after um, you know, leaving the farms is going into environmental science, environmental policy, international development, um, uh, worked in different places, different countries, uh, and for the last decade plus was working on different agricultural, environmental, and energy issues based out of Washington, D.C. I've been a freelance consultant for the last eight years um, and about six months ago decided to move home uh, to help out for the summer and get a little bit of a detox from Washington, and I'm still here. It turns out... um, there's so much to there's, it. Turns out I can work from here on a lot of the work that I had been doing, and um, 
have started a whole bunch of new work here that we can get into, um, but maybe I'll just pause there for a second. Well, so one of the um, kind of enduring themes of the Young Farmers Movement is people, especially farm kids growing up, leaving the farm, learning some skills, seeing the world, exerting their ambition, and then hopefully bringing those skills back to the farm. Um, it sounds like in your case also there's a lot of management type and um, project kind of skills that you're bringing to the situation. Do you want to talk about the mixture of enterprises and the kinds of brains that are required for a complex multi-generation farm business? Sure, yeah, and, and um, to be clear, a lot of my work is still focused off the farm, but um, one of the things that we did recently was to install a 109-kilowatt solar um, photovoltaic system. Uh, and, um, and, yeah, you know, it is, it's interesting coming back to the area. Um, it was, you know, quite a, you know, the, quite a lot of poverty in the region when I was growing up, and it's, it's interesting. There's been such a renaissance in the Finger Lakes. The wine industry has been growing and growing. Now there's a new microbrewery industry growing and growing. Um, there are a lot of young people that are able to come back and work. There's a really vibrant, organic farming community here. Many of the listeners may know of or know Klaus and Mary Hal Martin and their incredible organic farm that's 10 minutes from ours. Um, so yeah, so it's it's a really it is really interesting and it's really heartening to see that um, that a lot of young people are staying or coming home, um, and that there's this wonderful renaissance going on. Part of um, my coming back is has to do with energy issues. Um, about eight or eight years or more ago now, uh, there was an uh, oil and gas company that was fracking in Pennsylvania, and they had worked in secret with a local town official, and had gotten permission to bring um, and permission in quotation marks to bring uh, toxic fracking wastewater up from Pennsylvania, and they were going to start injecting it in the ground in an old gas well, uh, conventional gas well, less than two miles from the farm and less than a mile from one of the Finger Lakes, uh, from Pico Lake. And so that really caught everyone's attention, and everyone was up in arms, and we were able to, to stop that, from prevent that from happening. And then we've been highly engaged in that issue ever since and amazingly got a ban on hydrofracking, um, high-volume horizontal hydrofracking in New York State um, just, this, uh, just recently, just this year. So that was an amazing, um, amazing issue and really uh, made energy issues kind of front and center for a lot of people who normally wouldn't think a whole lot about where their energy comes from. Um, and it was, a, it was interesting because it, it posed such an existential threat to the farming and, and tourism and viticulture industry that is one of the kind of the lifeblood of the economy up here um, that it really got people thinking about energy. And then since then, uh, a Texas-based oil and gas uh, company has applied for the permits to store millions of gallons of liquid petroleum gas and propane in salt caverns, these naturally occurring salt caverns. Um, next to the Finger Lakes, the Finger Lake to the east of us. So that has a lot of the farmers and business owners and winery owners up in arms again, um, because there's a high likelihood of uh, catastrophic failure, which means um, explosions and other other uh, dangers and concerns. With that proposal, um, there are pipelines that farmers and friends of ours east of here are fighting, where um, oil company, oil and gas companies want to build. Um, 
gas pipelines, and they use um, an eminent domain is being used in some cases to take people's land um, to provide right away for a pipeline. So these energy issues are really, you know, have energy has always been, you know, a major input to farming. It's always been, and now climate change is affecting farming. Um, as per the drought that you're talking about on California, we've had a lot of, uh, a number of serious floods here in the last couple of years, and of course there's more and more extreme weather on the way as more and more energy is kind of, is, is, uh, trapped in the climate system. So it's, uh, yeah, so energy is, is where I've been, I had set out to work on environmental science and sustainable agriculture and got pulled into energy and just haven't been able to get away from it because it's such a central uh, part of so many of these issues um, that we all face and, and it's such a, a central part of the climate challenge. So, um, so yeah, so we, uh, you know, while we felt that it was really important that while we were uh, pushing back against the ex expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure in the region, we thought it was important to also implement the, the alternatives and, and the solutions. So we've done a lot of efficiency work on the farm. We've done, uh, we have a geothermal heating and cooling system that heats all of the barns and large, um, the tasting room, uh, the storage barns, and the winemaking facility. Uh, we have uh, the solar power system. We have a little prototype wind turbine um, that uh, has never worked that well sometimes. Sometimes being the early adapter um, has its problems. That was one that was donated by a company uh, years ago uh, that was not a successful prototype. But um, in terms of the mature technologies that we have, the solar and the geothermal, they're wonderful. And we now um, use very, very little fossil fuels on the farm. Well, and, you know, again, looking at this situation, your situation, and trying to draw conclusions that might be applicable to others, um, or others especially who have gone away and want to figure out how to come back to a rural place and establish a niche for themselves, getting the paperwork together and the business plan and the financing and uh, the, you know, getting engineering approval and zoning approval and getting grants to do the work of building these renewable and decentralized technologies of either wind or solar um, is super valuable to the farm, uh, farm family or farm community. And being able to learn how to do that and do it, you know, around town, as it were, uh, is kind of like being a country doctor. You know, you can, you can really, you really make yourself very useful very quickly. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. So having grown up here, I knew that farmers and winery owners were way too busy to be able to to do all that paperwork and to vet all the companies and become, you know, expert in all of this. So that was um, that was something that that was exactly what was needed. And um, so that's been really exciting. Um, we, a number of other wineries have have gone solar, um, kind of with us in a group effort. And there's lots more that have gone on their own. And it's really been uh, a big push. And Helping with the, um, you know, helping just, you know, raise the confidence level uh, and do the paperwork has been a big, a big part of that, for sure. Well, paperwork, and you know, I want to make sure that we give a little bit of a numbers work because, uh, you know, there's awesome farms that are putting up solar panels around, and one, you know, often our young farming community is takes a while to get to the point of being able to make the kind of capital investment in these renewable and solar, but could you talk a little bit about the math and the numbers of how much money you can save, how much money you can get as a loan or as a grant, and just some of the, like, give us some appetizing numbers, if you would, 
um, of what these kinds of green energy developments have meant in your community? Sure. Yeah, so it depends on where folks are. So um, there's different state policies and, and different state incentives. So it, it varies quite a bit state to state. At the national level, there's a federal investment tax credit in place right now for renewables, um, and it's a 30 percent federal tax credit. And so that is, again, tricky for young farmers who may or may not have big, <laughs> often won't have um, big tax liabilities. But for um, efficiency and wind and solar, that's 30%, and for geothermal, it's 10%. Um, and what that has done, what that tax credit has done, has um, encouraged a lot of uh, folks that do need uh, right tax tax uh, uh, benefits to provide the financing. So there's a lot of what they call third-party financing available for renewable energy projects. Uh, so that's one option. And, and I actually was thinking that that's what we would want to do um, for a lot of the businesses and wineries in this area. And then after working with some of the local agricultural banks, they really got it and really understood how renewable energy infrastructure on a farm enhances the value of the farm, it reduces the costs and also the risk to farms of future price increases for energy. Um, and, and so, you know, the terms that the local ag banks have been providing for loans have been wonderful. And then in New York State, there's uh, NYSERDA grants uh, available. So in our case, we were essentially able to use our NYSERDA grant, the state, uh, New York State grant, um, as, as essentially a down payment for the loan. So we, we didn't have to come up with a down payment. It just reduced the overall cost of the loan. And then... Um, you know that our bankers you know, knew the family and had worked with us for a long time, and uh, gave us just really fantastic terms. So, you know, everyone's everyone's situation is different, but you know, I, I think that's really important for folks that are looking at this, and for anyone in the renewables industry that's working with farms, is is to spend a lot of time with the banks and make sure that they understand um, how low the risks are for these for these systems. Um, in terms of numbers for us, uh, we put in, you know, it's, three, it's 109 kilowatts of solar. It's uh, 348 panels. They're 315-watt panels. And the, over, the total cost was in the $300,000 range. Um, and we have, you know, something like 30 grand a year in electricity costs. So, with, you know, you could say it would be a 10-year payback, but then with the tax credit and other things, it's more like a seven year payback. So, um, and we are, we weren't able to uh, put up enough solar to offset our entire electricity bill at this stage because the of the utility company, um, and that's a whole other conversation, but they limited us to um, just over 100 kilowatts based on the type of meter we have, which is, you know, there's a lot of work to be done on the, on the, the regulatory side to enable the distributed renewables to, to expand faster. But anyway, so we were working within the current uh, system. We were only able to put up 109 kilowatts. Um, so we, uh, right now, instead of paying our full electricity bill, we pay a much smaller electricity bill. And then essentially we're taking what we would have been paying to the power company and we're using it to pay down our solar loan. Um, and then after about seven years, um, we'll have, uh, you know, our power will be essentially free. And the panels, and it's interesting, too, this is, you know, for, for folks that are thinking long-term and multi-generational, the panels um, that we're using have a 25-year warranty, So, and there's no moving parts. They're, and these, you know, panels, solar panels were first started, um, or essentially 
started being uh, used in the 60s. They were invented in the 50s. Um, so there are panels out there that have been working for 40, 50 years. Um, and so it's just this wonderful investment where, you know, my little nephew, when he's my age, will still have free free electricity from these things. Well, and it's just also in terms of resiliency planning or multi-generational farm to, uh, to be having an income stream from a power-generating solar panel or wind turbine just adds another leg of stability to a farm business. And I wonder what I think would be interesting and clever to approach would be how estate planning uh, and kind of tax considerations for intergenerational family land transfer could get ameliorated through some of the tax benefits of these green energies. Um, Can we talk a little bit about the subsidy structure that exists currently? And um, you've done some really interesting thinking about this and have applied yourself, and I think we as young agrarians would benefit from learning some of what you've studied. Uh, Can you explain to us a little bit how this has been structured? And when you were talking about the current paradigm that we're in for distributed energy and that the power companies kind of won't pay retail for the power that we create, even though if we were consuming power, we would be paying retail. That's not widely understood. So maybe start from the beginning and from this, from the, where the power attaches to our house and then scale out kind of to the national and international context with um, the, the structures that we have for um, emerging uh, and distributed green energy. Yeah, sure. And and then and also before I answer that, I just want to say, you know, what you said about um, resiliency and 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 additional revenue streams for farms is is huge. I mean, my I mean, ultimately, my my hope would be that every farm would have renewables on it. And and it just it, it's and, and I should have mentioned that our geothermal system is saving us about in the range of ten thousand dollars a year in fuel oil, and more than that on Whoa. that. You know the the we we don't have to use any anymore, so we just n- use none. Um, and we've had a couple of years where we've had the, you know the polar vortex. Anyone in the Northeast has has suffered through this. Uh, and you know I know a lot of farms and businesses that just got creamed with heating oil costs. And we you know we we just use the you know the heat from the earth. And so you know, we use a little bit extra electricity to run the the heat exchangers and the pumps. But um, so our electricity bill went up a little bit, uh, but then we eliminated our fossil, our, our heating oil bill. So yeah, on average, more than 10 grand a year in savings with that um, at, after paying it off. Um, in terms of the broader context, I think and Germany is a really good example of a place where it's common for farmers to have um, to own shares in cooperatives, um, whether it's biogas or wind or solar, and it's it's common for farms to get a third of their income from renewables. And that's, you know, as you were Whoa. pointing out, game-changing. If you know where a third, consistently a third of your income is coming from, it completely changes um, the agricultural landscape. Um, in this country, you know, a big part of if we zoom way out, you know, the context is that, you know, we're going through, and, and if we look globally, we're going through this huge historic energy transition right now. Um, every year for the past three years, more renewable energy generation capacity has been installed globally than new nuclear and fossil combined. And it, that's just the new reality. That's the way it's going to be from now on. Um, and we're hitting these tipping points where in Germany and in England, even without subsidies, wind is the cheapest form of power. Um, it's the cheapest form of power in a number of other places. 
Um, and so it's it's and the utilities, the power companies have had the same business model ever since they were invented. Uh, so it's a really hard time for them. Many of them are are resisting change. Many are trying to change, but don't have the the tools or the skill sets. Um, so it's a it's an interesting time. And in, in many states, there are net metering policies, which um, which is what we have in New York, which allows us to, um, you know, on cold uh, on you know short cloudy winter days when the panels aren't producing a whole lot of power and maybe we're using quite a bit of power for a big event or something or we're bottling, running the bottling line or something, we can take power from the grid. Um, and then in the summertime when the, the panels are producing a lot of, of power um, and we're not using much, uh, that energy can go into the grid, can be used elsewhere, and will be credited for it. And then the net metering policy means that mandates that the utilities net out how much we produced and how much we used at the end of the year. Um, and then what you were referring to is that if we produce any excess, we won't get paid retail rates. We'll get paid wholesale rates. And the argument from that is that the utilities have to buy wholesale rates. And again, that's different state by state because some states um, have deregulated and it, 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 that gets complicated quickly. But um, what, there's a number of different sites that I can send for folks to look at if they want to look at their state um, and look at what the policies are in their state. Um, it, it's, it just really varies quite a lot. In New York State, uh, for folks that are looking at renewables, there are um, state tax credits, there's a federal tax credit, and then there's NYSERDA grants. And then depending on if it's a residential or commercial, you may also have access to, to use uh, accelerated depreciation as well. Um, what, what else should I touch on? Well, I mean, I, I just love to have a moment to consider the political significance of energy production in the coming years and the kind of longer term or medium term future. We know how much political influence these oil companies have over our policies and foreign policies and the kind of terrible consequences of our reliance on uh, concentrated power. And I just am kind of thinking about what the political consequences are of a more distributed power and that power um, and network of producers. Uh, just, yeah. It's like totally different. Con it's so exciting. <laughs> it's so exciting yeah. to think of being, you know, joining a class of producers of food and producers of energy um, and for those to be kind of embedded within one another. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's a, it's a complete, enormous economic, political power shift when um, when people can produce their own power. I mean, this is a huge shakeup in global power dynamics. Um, and one 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 point of clarification, though, is that in um, for the most part, oil in this country is just used for transportation. So when we're talking about breaking up oil, the power of the oil companies. In terms oh, that oil has over our economy and over our politics, um, we're talking more about electrification of transport. Um, you know, I keep my eye out for electric gators for the farm. You know, it's it's really electrification, um, and then it, you get into the complexity of of producing biofuels sustainably for big, heavy-duty engines and and things that can't that you know that won't electrify um, in the near term. Um, for the electricity sector. You know, and then you know you've got geothermal for heating and cooling, and, and other renewable heat sources. You can use sustainable biomass, that kind of thing. And then in electricity, yeah, it, it's it's solar, wind, 
uh, it's smart grid, it's demand reduction, it's all those things. Um, and as you point out, it's a huge power shift, and it's such an exciting time. And anything that your network and other ag networks can do to help farmers um, get smart and figure out the best ways to finance uh, and switch to renewables, it's such an incredible way to make our farming system more, you know, physically, you know, in terms of the climate and whatnot, and um, uh, secure, but also economically secure, uh, and really change the the power dynamic where um, we're much more self-reliant and, and resilient. And you know, when you start talking about um, threats of terrorism and, and threats of even you know the extreme weather taking down the grid, we're also much more resilient in terms of um, the physical grid when there's lots of small distributed renewables instead of just a few huge uh, generators. So. Uh, yeah. It's, well, and just uh, I'm even just thinking, like, in terms of you're there on your land with your animals that you love grazing near the solar panels or, um, you know, how different that is than you're in a mining camp controlled by an overlord or, you know, an absentee mining comp- concern in, a, you know, in a, in a position to plunder the earth. I mean, just these these fracking camps and the, fr- and the boom towns that grow up around them and the violence and the you know, whorehouses and the fast development and extreme prices and just the whole cultural context of our extreme energy extraction is so degrading of of humanity and of our of our social contract. And so if you can just compare that to what could be. And so well, I'm very motivated. Let's make a little guidebook for young farmers on how to consider and think about and plan for um, energy generation as part of their farm business mix, for sure. Um, in our few remaining minutes, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about the lakes region that you're in and some of what's happening there. You gave a brief overview about the grain growing and the organic winery community and this emerging, you know, New York State wants to be the best state to brew beer in in the country. Um <laughs> Like this, like northern band, water-rich, soil-rich regions, many of which were some of the those settled in the 19th century during the early phases of west, westward expansion. Uh, can you just maybe talk about what is happening there and where opportunities are in that landscape to fill out the uh, emerging uh, agrarian, diverse agrarian economy there? Yeah, well, and, and again, I've I've only been back for six months, so I'm I'm no expert in everything that's going on here. But um, you know, there are uh, cool young chefs who are working with farmers, and literally, you know, from from choosing seeds and crops the year before to you know to the to the plate. There's um, you know, leaders like the Martins and, and my brother and his wife and others who are you know, working really, really hard on soil health and building up organic material in the soil and just producing the most exquisite produce and types of produce that people don't even have never even tasted or never heard of and really expanding um, the diversity of food. There's you know, wineries like ours that have been around for 30 years and, and you know, some of these other multi-generational wineries and then also uh, lots of brand new ones popping up. Um, there's uh, and, and with a real ethic and a real understanding that's, that, that sustaining the the physical beauty of the Finger Lakes is a big part of why people come, it, it, and it's a, you know it's a combination of the exquisite food, exquisite wine and beer, um, and and 
it's interesting the multi-generational mentality that families that have been here for a long time, you know, when someone comes in and offers a check for some quick cash from fracking, um, it, it, it doesn't have the appeal of, of places where, you know, perhaps like people are hurting for money, um, but they don't have, they don't have that longer term um, mentality. So I think, you know, I, for me, just coming back, having been fighting these battles, out, you know, here from afar and then all over the place, um, I think we've got something really special going on here, uh, for sure. Well, you heard it here first. Um, this is uh, this episode just sped right by. Um, smart women talk fast, and now we are done. Um, but this is Suzanne <laughs> uh, Hunt, and she runs Hunt Green LLC, which is an environmental consulting company. And shucks, I think we might need to write a little guidebook for young farmers. This sounds like something you are highly qualified to do, but it's rude of me to ask on air, so I won't. But thank you for opening this dialogue for us. Yeah, we can certainly pull together resources and put them on your website and then update them. And Yeah, I would love to help um, make sure that anyone who's interested can get the info they need. God, don't you love it? Don't you love people? Okay, so everybody, thank you. Thank you to you. Suzanne, and thank you to all of you. I want to make sure that you all know that we are in, officially, we are in Almanac recruitment season. It is time to put pen to paper to type your, warm your little hands up by the fire and start typing. uh, Use this downtime and this long evening by the fire to put down some thoughts from the year and reflect on what you've learned and get focused and be disciplined in aligning those thoughts in paragraph form, two pages, three pages, not much more. We would love your essays, illustrations, historical research projects, snippets of all kinds. The theme for this year's almanac is called The Commons. And shucks, we'd love for your contribution, and then you will be a part of the new almanac. Also, in addition, the Greenhorns mailing list is just going out now, announcing our film festival, which is called Up Up Farm Film Festival. It is four DVDs full of young farmer films, all sorts of people who've been making movies about young farmers that are going to be distributed as a cooperative to campuses, churches, community groups. Whoever wants to screen these movies can screen these movies, and they can get them from us, the Greenhorns, it also includes the Greenhorns, but um, there's four full DVDs. I think it's like 18 hours or something of, of movies. Okie dokie, that's all the time we have, and I wish you well in this coming holiday time. Stay warm. Wear your thick socks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.